recently I came across a cartoon that demonstrated how people don't like to take responsibilities for their own action. It was a Charlie Brown cartoon, and it showed Peppermint Patty, if you're familiar with this comic strip, talking to Charlie Brown. She says to Charlie Brown in this first comic block, guess what, Chuck? And she calls him Chuck. The first day of school, and I got sent to the principal's office. It's your fault, Charlie Brown. In the second box, Charlie Brown replies to Peppermint Patty, my fault? How could it be my fault? Why do you say that everything is my fault? Peppermint Patty replies, well, you're my friend, aren't you, Charlie Brown? You should have been a better influence on me. Somehow we have the notion that someone else is responsible for our actions. We never look in the mirror at our own attitudes and our own actions, but it's someone else's fault. It's a favorite phrase of ours. It's all your fault. It's always your fault. We blame the circumstances into which we enter. We blame the situation which we are in. We blame our family. We blame our parents. We blame our children. We, we blame our friends. It's everyone's fault but mine. The problem is, it's not always everyone else's fault. It's often our own. It's time many of us take up the challenge of living out the Christian life with full responsibility and taking ownership of the life we are called to live for Jesus Christ. And so we're going to begin a series of messages in our new sermon series entitled, Own Up, A Call for Personal Responsibility. The term, own up, is a colloquial term in the modern generation that says, own up to your responsibilities. Take the responsibilities that you and I need to have and own up to it. And we're going to be studying in this series the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, it's towards the latter part of the Scriptures. Oftentimes, it's harder to find. It's only a few pages, but it follows after the book of James, Hebrew James. And then we get to First and Second Peter. First and second, third John, and then Jude, and then Revelation. But we're going to be in First Peter these next 11 weeks. And so if you have a bookmark, put it there. If you're, you have your Bible markers, put it there as well. We're going to be studying the book of First Peter in our series entitled, Own Up, A Call for Personal Responsibilities. In verses 1 and 2 of First Peter chapter 1, we are given a bit of a background about this epistle, this letter. Look with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Here, as we begin this epistle, 
The Apostle Peter identifies himself as the writer of this letter. He's writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the area of Asia Minor, known in the first century as Asia Minor, known in our modern day today as the country of Turkey. These Christians who had dispersed to the area of Asia Minor were undergoing a bit of persecution. Perhaps some of them were beginning to waver in their spiritual lives. Their walk with Jesus was no longer as strong as it used to be because of the things that are happening in their lives. They had busier things to take care of. And so they were waiting in their spiritual lives, and so they needed a bit of encouragement, and this letter would serve its purpose. Peter would encourage them in this letter, challenge them, in fact, to take up the responsibilities they have as people who are set apart as believers in Jesus Christ for a very special purpose. He tells them in verse 1 that they are pilgrims and strangers. The Greek word for this is the idea of the fact that they are foreign nationals. They are temporary residents in the areas in which they live. They would not fully fit into the world where they live. However, they would bear a responsibility. And that responsibility is found in verse 2. Notice the word in verse 2, obedience. They were pilgrims and strangers called to live in obedience. This was a responsibility for them to faithfully live as temporary residents in a world which they may not fully fit in, but they were to live with the responsibility of the obedience in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 2 how the triune God plays such an important part in each believer's life to fulfill this responsibility. I wish we had time just to unpack these two verses. The epistles are always chock full of wonderful theology. Look at verse 2. God the Father in His sovereignty chooses us out of death and into life. And we are set apart to be more Christ-like through the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the process we call sanctification. And we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all at work in our lives so that we will live out responsibly the life we are called to live. It's a wonderful heritage and a wonderful inheritance that we have when we are called children of the Heavenly Father. And so the first responsibility we carry as believers is the responsibility of an inheritance. And we're going to be talking about that in detail this morning. What is this inheritance? And what are the implications of being children of God who have an inheritance from the Heavenly Father? How should that change the way we live this life? Look at verses 3 to 5 as Peter continues. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now let's unpack this. The Bible tells us in verse 3 that we are children of God and we have been given a heavenly inheritance in Jesus Christ. Now what is this inheritance? This heavenly inheritance is all the eternal rewards that the scriptures promise us when we place our trust in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. This includes eternal life. This includes our eternal security. This includes our mansions in glory, our rulership. All this is our inheritance when we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Now, we already know that, except we often forget something. We forget what verse 4 tells us. We forget that our heavenly inheritance is eternal. And that's number one of your taking notes. We receive, number one, an inheritance that is eternal. My friends, that's what you and I are living this Christian life for. We are living for an inheritance that is incorruptible, that is undefiled, does not fade away. Three wonderful concepts and words that drive home the fact that when we live our lives for Jesus Christ, it is for something that will last forever. A reward that will never fade. It's a wonderment that we in our lives today live for things that will pass away. And that's why the rewards of this physical world are so unsatisfying. That's why we have to put up certificates and put up our posters and our trophies. Because we don't want people to ever forget our accomplishments. We don't want people to forget who we are and, and, and what we've done. We're so afraid to become irrelevant, forgotten. The money that we work for gets used up. We can't take it with us. Sometimes it's stolen. Sometimes it's lost. Sometimes it's dispersed down the generations. And yet we live for something that is so temporary. We've forgotten that the heavenly rewards which we are to live for is one that does not fade away. It never diminishes in its glory and luster. In fact, verse 5 tells us that our heavenly inheritance, safely in the security of the safe deposit boxes in heaven, is guarded by God himself. I want you to think about that implication. The promises that God gives us of eternal rewards in our eternal inheritance is insured and secured by the very character of God. That means you and I never have to worry about the fact that if we live this life for Jesus Christ, that somehow we will be shortchanged. That somehow when we get to heaven, and I know that's the fear of a lot of people, if I live my life for Jesus Christ, passionately for Him, that when I get to heaven, God's going to say, well, you all did a good job, everyone gets the same thing. 
No. The Bible tells us how we live our life on this earth in this present time reaps rewards for all eternity. The rewards will not be the same. The very character of God will ensure that. Some of us may wonder, is it worth it all if I live passionately for Jesus with the life that I have? And I want to assure you, as Peter assures his audience, it will be worth it all, as the song says, when we see Jesus. God himself will guarantee that. The very God who saved us is the one who guards and secures that incorruptible inheritance. It's a wonderful truth. Our inheritance is eternal. This week in America, there was something called the Powerball Lottery. Now, some of you may have heard of it. It gained notoriety in the news this week because it reached the largest prize ever in the history of the world of lottery. Because in 19 draws, no one won. The jackpot, the pot had grown to 1.5 billion U.S. dollars. Think about that. If you pick the winning numbers, you could walk away with 70 billion pesos. Even if you took away taxes, if you took out a lump sum payout, you would get close to $1 billion tax-free. 47 billion pesos. Now, I do not play the lottery. I have no desire to do so. I think it is a waste of time and a waste of money when the chances are one in 300 million to win. But boy, that pot is sweet when it's $1.5 billion. I'll be honest with you. I had a lot of friends in America who could have bought me a ticket if I asked them to. And in my mind, I could have justified, boy, if I won, think of all the ministries I could help. Well, I didn't buy one, but I got a phone call from a friend in America who told me, hey, Steve, I bought you a Powerball ticket. I bought it for you, and just, it's for Jesus. I had, in his hands, my $2 worth of hope for something I knew I would never win. But you know what? It was fun to think about. Maybe finally God will hear my prayers, and I will actually win this thing. What would I do with $1 billion tax-free I'll be honest with you, I would quit my job the next day. The next day, I, I woke up early on Thursday morning because the drawing was on Wednesday evening in America to check the numbers. And guess what? I didn't win. That's why I'm preaching here this morning. But then I began to realize a piece of paper that many call their $2 worth of hope. I felt sad for the millions of people who spent their life savings, unfortunately in many cases, to try to win this lottery 
to buy a $2 opportunity at Hope. I want you to think about this. Why would you want to win the lottery? You want to win the lottery for security. You want to win so that your future will be secure, so that you can have a good life. And so you will invest everything you have to try to earn something that you cannot keep. And here's my proposition to you this morning. Live for something better. Live for something better. An inheritance that is eternal. And yet so many of us are living this life for something which we try to buy into for some $2 worth of hope, for some $10 worth of hope, for some even $100,000 worth of hope, but they are trying to buy hope when hope is for free. Live for something better, an inheritance that is eternal. Verse 6 to verse 7. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter continues by acknowledging that the people he's writing to are going through times of difficulties But in those times of difficulties, verse 6, they are to focus on the inheritance they have in Jesus Christ. In this, what's the this? Always the preceding subject, the inheritance they have. In this inheritance, you greatly rejoice. In their times of difficulties, they were to focus on the inheritance they have in Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 7, Peter does, and he says that these trials are good for them. Because these trials refine their faith into something that is more precious than gold to show the genuineness of their faith. Sometimes we have it too easy in our context today. There's a reason why oftentimes our faith is so shallow. Because our faith is not being refined. Our faith is not being tested to show its genuineness. And so if you ever feel like you're wavering in your faith or you don't think too much about it, would you pray this very difficult prayer? Lord, send me some trials. I said it was difficult. Send me some challenges in my life so that my faith will be refined, will be tested because it will show itself, notice in verse 7, more precious than gold which perishes. And that through my testing and the refinement of my faith, Jesus Christ will be praised and honored and glorified. Paul continues in verse 8 and 9. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Here's what Peter's saying here in verses 8 and 9. Peter's saying that a Christian's joy should be independent of one's circumstances. It doesn't matter what you're going through. And actually, Peter was commending them. I see in you joy that is inexpressible. Regardless of what you're going through, you still express joy, a deep joy. Now, what is the basis of the joy that they have? In verse 8, it tells us that the first basis of their joy comes from the recognition that they have an inheritance that is unseen. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice. And then the second reason why they are rejoicing is in the end of verse 9, because of their salvation, the salvation of your souls. Now, let's break this down into two parts. The part about rejoicing in something unseen and the part about rejoicing in your salvation. Let me ask you this. Can you do those things? Can you rejoice in something you cannot see? It's hard to do. It's hard to rejoice at something you cannot see. That's why we've got to go back to the first principle. We trust in the truth that our inheritance is eternal. It is guarded by the very character of an unchanging and almighty God. So what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Even though we don't see our future inheritance, our heavenly inheritance, can we rejoice in that fact? Let me give you a practical example. Let's say I did win the $1.5 billion Powerball lottery. And I liked one of you particularly. Let's say I tell one of you who I like very much, I'm going to give you $100 million as an inheritance. I'm going to write out my will. When I die, I'm going to give you $100 million. But you won't get it for 30 years because I don't plan to die before then. So you've got to wait 30 years, but you are guaranteed full security for the rest of your life, $100 million. You do the peso equivalent. But you won't get to touch it for 30 years. But since your future is secured, I, I would like you, for the sake of God's ministry, to give away $2,000 a year, 100,000 pesos a year. So 30 years, that's $60,000, 3 million pesos. Can you give $60,000 away, 3 million pesos, remembering that you're going to get $100 million in 30 years that will allow you to live very comfortably for the rest of your life? Would you take my offer? Most of you would not. Because note this. We are not willing to part with what we have until we get what we were promised. We are not willing to part with what we have until we get what we are promised. That's how we want God to work. God, show me the money, and then I'll part with what I've worked so hard to accumulate. We are not willing to part with what we have until we get what we have been promised. And that's the problem of why many Christians cannot find joy in the Christian life. Because our inheritance, the Bible says very clearly, is 
in the future. Secured by the very God who died in our place. But we don't believe Him. We don't trust Him. We've been burned too many times by other people. Why would we trust God? And so I'm going to keep what I have. These Christians in the time of Peter, they didn't have much to lose. They were being persecuted, and so they were commended for rejoicing in what they do not see because they recognized that what they had wasn't very much. They realized their inheritance was secure in the hands of God, and that is why it is easier for people who don't have very much to trust God more than those who have a lot of money a lot of resources. We don't fully enjoy the freedom of living responsibly for Jesus because we just aren't sure what we will get at the end because we can't see it. I hope you will be willing to part with what you have because you are assured of what you have been promised. no less than by the very God who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and almighty and sovereign, that your very inheritance is secure. It will not be affected by inflation. No fluctuation in the stock market or its crash will affect your eternal inheritance. It doesn't matter how much money is in the Philippine SSS. It will not affect your eternal inheritance. Can you rejoice in that which you cannot see? The second part about rejoicing in verse 9 is about rejoicing in our salvation. Do you rejoice in the fact that you are saved? That you have been brought from death to life? That you have been given something that you cannot buy and then you have something that you cannot lose? Think about that. Do you rejoice in your salvation that you have something that you cannot buy and have something that you cannot lose? So ask yourself the question, as I had to ask myself this question, what more do I want? You see, for a lot of us, rejoicing is when I get something new. When I get a new phone, I get a new car, I get a, a new friend, a new house, a new vacation. I'm going to rejoice. But here, the Bible tells us in verse 9, we are to rejoice at the salvation of our souls. Do you rejoice in your salvation? My birthday is coming up. I don't tell you uh, because I want you to know. I tell you because every year around my birthday, my wife asks me one question, a question that I only hear once a year. What do you want for your birthday? You know, it's fun to be asked this question at least once a year because I know that she is giving me license to buy whatever I want with my own money. And she asked it this week, of all the weeks I'm preparing this message. What do you want? And I thought about that and I told her, I'll I'll get back to you. The same question I posed to you was the same question that's been, I don't want to say bothering, but has been resonating in my mind. Steve, what else do you need? 
you have salvation. What else do you want? You have salvation. And when I came face to face with God, I realized I don't have any more that I should ask for. I don't have anything else that I need. Not because I'm a pastor or a spiritual leader, but I can tell you very honestly, when you think about this question and it's implied truth, then I can stand before you very honestly and tell you I am content. And that should be your answer as well. Because if you have salvation, you have everything that you need in this life. That's why the Bible talks about being fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Verse 8, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. I rejoice at my salvation, and I hope that you will as well. To have received something I cannot buy, and to receive something I cannot ever lose. I know sometimes the impact of the concept of salvation, even its very word, has been lost on people who grew up in the church but went to a Christian school. And so we take salvation for granted. Oh, yeah, 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 I know, I'm saved. Jesus Christ died for me. Okay, let's move on with life. I'm going to heaven. That's it. We have minimized the greatness of the work of salvation in our life. We who could do nothing to move from death to life have been brought from death to life by one who has died in our place. And so when you wake up every day in the morning, what brings you joy? Maybe for some of you it's a cup of coffee. For some of you, uh, the greatest joy of every morning is home-cooked breakfast. For some of you... Students especially, you wake up and you find out school has been canceled. Boy, that's a lot of joy right there. Or do you wake up with the fact knowing that whatever happens to you this day, that the world can throw at you, the worst that the world can throw at you, whatever happens this day, you are secured to be in the presence of the Savior. It's a different depth of joy that I think a lot of Christians miss. A depth of joy that says, I rejoice in my salvation. And every morning I wake up, I praise God, and I thank Him because of what He's done and my standing in this world. I came across an article this week of J.I. Packard, who turned 89. J.A. Packard is a wonderful theologian, a wonderful writer. Uh, and um, I read this uh, on an article entitled, On Losing Sight But Seeing Christ. If you get a chance, check out this article on the Gospel Coalition. J.A. Packard has been serving God for decades. He is 89 years old, and as that title of the article tells us, he has lost his sight because of macular degeneration. Can you imagine at the age of 89 having served God so faithfully for decades writing more than 300 books? Wonderful pastor, wonderful theologian. He can no longer see. He must learn at the age of 89 
to live life without being able to see. Sometimes we just wonder, Lord, just take him. Why allow him to have to relearn how to live life without being able to see? In this interview with J.I. Packard at the age of 89, the interviewer asks Packard, is heaven and eternity much on your mind? What a funny question. You know what that question is? It's a question that's asking him, are you ready to die? Is heaven and eternity much on your mind? But I love his response. He responded to the interviewer, he says this, in positive terms, the essence of eternity as I conceive it, as it lies before me as my destination, is quite simply the joy of being with the Lord. This great theologian, this scholar of the scriptures, as he looks forwards to eternity, you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about the joy that is being with the Lord. And then he mentions Richard Baxter, a 17th century Puritan who, who lived with pain throughout his life, uh, a physical condition that could not be cured with the medicine of the 17th century. But he tells about how Richard Baxter, this Puritan man, lived in peace because of the strength of his hope. The hope of glory. He lived with pain. But he saw the hope of glory, the hope of the eternal, eternal inheritance that is kept secured in the hands of God. If you were to live to the age of 90 or 89, and you lost eyesight, would you be angry with God that he was not faithful with you until the day you saw him? Or could you say, as Packard said, quite simply, I'm looking forward to the joy of being with the Lord. I have the hope of glory. That is the secret for how you can age gracefully. How you and I at any age can age beautifully. With the mindset of knowing that I am looking forward to that day when I get to be with the Lord face to face. So can you rejoice in the unseen? Can you rejoice in your salvation? Because if you can, then you have, you've captured the essence of our inheritance. Our second principle, number two, an inheritance that results in joy. You see, the essence of our inheritance is that our inheritance results in joy. You and I have a responsibility to be joyful because of what we know we will receive from Almighty God. It should permeate the way we live. When the great composer, when the great church musician composer Hayden was once asked how it was that his church music was always so cheerful, the great composer made a most appropriate and beautiful reply. He said, I cannot make it otherwise. I write according to the thoughts I feel. When I think upon my God, my heart is so full of joy that the notes dance and leap, as it were, from my pen. 
And since God has given me a cheerful heart, it would be pardoned me that I serve him with a cheerful spirit. Love that. When I think upon God, my heart is so full of joy. Maybe the problem for many of us is that we're not joyful because we don't think about God. And yet we're called to think about God with every waking moment of our life. Can you say in your life, when I think about God and all the implications of what God has done, my heart is so full of joy. In our culture today, especially amongst the young people, they have something what is called emo. I never understood emo. I think that's short for emotions. And it's cool to be emo. It's cool to be melancholy and, and depressed and, and thoughtful and pensive being emo. Let me tell you what. That spirit is not from God. It isn't. Because the Bible tells us that in the presence of God, there is joy. When I think upon my God, and that's what a lot of emo people need to do, they need to think about God. Then they will understand that hearts will be full of joy. Verse 10 and 11. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what and what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 10 and 11 talks about the fact that throughout the ages, in the times of the Old Testament, the prophets had, had been an, anticipating, had been foretelling about the inheritance that would come through the Messiah and the glories that would follow. They were anticipating the inheritance, the heavenly one, once the Messiah came. But I, I want you to notice verse 11. Don't forget that he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. Don't forget that our inheritance is based on someone dying. That's the very nature of inheritance. When someone dies, then you get your money. That's why in the Chinese culture, the Asian culture, a living son with a living father is never to ask his father, what's my inheritance? If you ask that question, you will probably get slapped in your face. Why? What's the implication? If you ask for your inheritance, or, or you just want to know what it is. The father in a typical Asian family would think to himself, you want me to die? That's why it's not asked. That also poses other problems, but it's just not asked in our culture. For you and I to receive our inheritance... Someone has to die. So it is our spiritual inheritance. 
We enter into our spiritual inheritance because our Heavenly Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. And that's the truth. Verse 12. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. The truth of the message of our salvation and inheritance as children of the Heavenly Father is something we call the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. It is good news. And this gospel good news message is something so special and something so worth pursuing, verse 12 tells us, that even angels desire to look into them and they are in wonderment. I want you to think about that. What would angels see and desire to look into? Angels are looking into this act of salvation. This act of grace on the part of the Heavenly Father through His Son because they don't fully comprehend it. And I believe they will never fully comprehend it because angels never experience the grace of God. You see, if you took angelology and theology, you will know that when angels sinned, they were fallen angels and they became demons. They did not experience a saving work of the Savior in their lives. But they see that mankind, who don't deserve anything, have received this greatest of inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ who died on their behalf. Imagine these angels and what they see in heaven every day. But they desire to look into this so-called salvation by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. Because I believe they do not fully comprehend it. But you and I have experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus. And yet, many of us don't care. The gospel, the good news, the implications of salvation should be something we so desire to acknowledge and think about every day. And then with the same fervor, share it with others. That's why angels cannot evangelize, because they have never experienced the saving grace of Jesus. And how can you share something that you have not experienced? While we, as human beings, mankind, have experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, how come we keep our mouths shut? You see, verses... 10 to 12 tells us that this inheritance is something worth pursuing. And that's number three. Our eternal inheritance is an inheritance that is worth pursuing. An inheritance that is worth pursuing. You and I, my friends, have a lifelong responsibility to think every day when we wake up about the inheritance and grace that God has given to us. If you don't know much about it, then read the Word of God every day. 
Because as you read the Scriptures, you will become very acutely aware that you are the recipient of something amazing. And you will wake up every day with thanksgiving and joy in your heart. I try to do this every morning. I don't do it every morning because sometimes I forget. But I try to wake up every morning. And I align myself and I center myself as I look into the Word of God. I remind myself that I am a child of God. And I've received an amazing inheritance only by His grace. I've received something I could never have bought and have in my life something I will never lose. And so I will pursue the gospel call. I will pursue living out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in my life every day. I will pursue the telling of it to others and the mission of what I have with the life that I have, even amidst trials. It is an inheritance that is worth pursuing. So let's put it all together. The responsibility of an eternal inheritance is to pursue it with joy. The responsibility that you and I have of having an eternal inheritance is to pursue it, to look forward to it with joy. Inherently, our responsibility is joy. After I realized I did not win the $1.5 billion lottery, I wanted to know who did. Three people in America won. Now they would have to share. They would only get $500 million each. Two are still unknown, but one revealed herself. And I read about what happened when she found out she won. As she was being interviewed, she had stayed late into the evening to find out the numbers of the lottery. And when she found out, she began to yell and scream like a mad woman. Jumping up and down, her husband had already gone to sleep. She woke him up and she said to him, we've won. She called her son and her daughter and told them, we've won. We've hit the jackpot. I could just picture her. Sadly, I could have pictured myself, but different story. Of the joy that must be to know that you've won, won, well, not $500 million. Well, at that time, she didn't know the other winner. So, yeah, she probably thought she won $1 billion. Where is that joy in your life? When you are the recipient of the eternal inheritance that you have. It is a sad statement in our life, including mine, that I'd get a lot more excited at winning a billion dollars than knowing that I've won eternal life. And I hate to use a gambling term, but every day that you live this life, you should live with the reality of knowing that you've hit jackpot. 
and the same excitement that you would have in winning that money, even more you must have when it comes to the eternal reward and inheritance that you have. You should be so uncontained that you should be joyfully jumping up and down every day, waking up every morning with, with the joy in your life, knowing that you're standing secure, held by the very Almighty God in His hands. And that you can't wait to tell everyone in your spheres of influence about this amazing inheritance that you have received. Not because you got lucky. Not because you paid into it. But because by the grace of God, He stood in your place, in my place. And He stretched out His hand. And He died for us. You are the recipients of that grace. Now go forth and fulfill its responsibility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to be reminded myself that in this thing called salvation, there's nothing more I need, nothing more I should want. Help me and our congregation this morning to center our lives, to acknowledge what you have done, and to live out the implications of its truth in our life. May we wake up every morning as if we've hit the jackpot, because we have. The wonderful prize of knowing we will enter one day into heaven see you face to face and to open that vault which contains all of our spiritual rewards and on that we will day we will give praise and glory to your name because you have kept your word and by your very character you have secured it on our behalf on an appointed day until that day, Lord, I pray that we as a church, we as a body of Christ, take up the mantle of responsibility to rejoice evermore. The countenance of our lives speak forth of things which we cannot see, but we are sure of. And we rejoice in our salvation. May the words from the scripture continue to convict hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.